What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We start with stocks trying to avoid four straight days of losses as one big bank CEO throws some cold water on an overly dovish Fed in the year ahead. Also, we have some breaking news. The U.S. launches its fourth coordinated strike against Houthi rebel targets in Yemen. This is the list of attacked Red Sea ships. It grows to 33. Also, Boeing trying to get over its crisis. Regulators say this morning that inspections for its initial group of grounded 737 MAX 9 jets is complete with 131 left to go. Plus, Apple, it waves the white flag in its smartwatch patent dispute. And then later in the show, one weekend, we check on the state of nearly one dozen Bitcoin ETFs and we see if investor enthusiasm has fallen off or if it's remained strong. It's Thursday, January the 18th, 2024. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Let's get you ready to start your day. As always, we kick off the hour with a check on U.S. stock futures with the Dow rising a three-day losing streak and the Nasdaq coming off back-to-back losses. Take a look. Kind of a mixed picture. So the Dow's fractionally lower, basically flat. The S&P just fractionally higher. It's the Nasdaq that's lower, down about one-third of a percent. We're also checking the bond market with the 10, the 20, and the 30-year yield hitting their highest level in just about a month. Let's look at the benchmark. Right now, that yield at 4.07, almost 4.08. We're also looking at energy oil edging slightly higher this morning. Taking a look at the oil complex right now, WTI, the U.S. benchmark, up almost 1%. Brent crude, the international benchmark, up just about a half of a percent. And also a quick check on some of the largest Bitcoin ETFs as we mark one week since their public market debut. Taking a look right now, you see the iShares Bitcoin Trust right now in the pre-market down fractionally, essentially flat. The biggest moves down here at the bottom of this board is the ARC 21 shares Bitcoin ETF down almost a half a percent. We'll have someone from 21 shares here on the show. Also, the Invesco Galaxy Bitcoin ETF down over a half a percent. Okay, that is your morning setup. Let's now see how things are shaping up overseas. Carolyn Roth in our London newsroom with a, a close look at the early action. Carolyn, good morning. Good morning to you, Frank. And we're seeing the European markets recovering after three days of losses here. Yesterday, the stock 600 posting its worst day since October. Why? It had to do with the ECB, of course. Comments coming from the ECB president telling us to expect the first rate cut only in the summer. So yes, here on this side of the pond as well, we're having to scale back the expectations as to when the easing will actually start. Take a look at the markets this morning. Again, we're seeing signs of stabilization here. Some buyers coming back in very slim gains, but yeah, we'll take them. The Zetrodax is up by a quarter of 1%, roughly the FTSE 100, hovering around the flat line. And the IBEX 35 in Spain seeing a little bit of an underperformance here, off by 0.3%. But the SMI in Switzerland up by 0.2%. I want to tell you about Richemont. This is a luxury stock which blew it out of the water with its third quarter sales report. Sales up by 9%. They're seeing growth in all regions apart from the EU, but they're saying there are signs of the Chinese consumer 
coming back to Europe, and that is really good news. Finally, want to leave you with a look at the sectors one by one. What we're seeing here is household goods, technology, and of course, travel and leisure um, nicely outperforming. On the downside, utilities, food, beverages, and healthcare seeing some very slim losses. Back over to you, Frank. All right, Carolyn Roth, live in our London newsroom. Carolyn, thank you. Time now for a check on some of this morning's top corporate stories. Our Silvana Hadao is here with those. Silvana, good morning to you. Hey, Frank. Good Thursday morning to you. Well, the FAA says inspections of an initial group of 40 Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets is complete following that January 5th Alaska air panel blowout on a MAX 9 that was just eight weeks old. The agency will now, quote, thoroughly review the data and convene what it calls a corrective action review board to decide if the planes can resume flying passengers. Former Meta Platforms Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg is leaving the company's board of directors. Sandberg joined Facebook back in 2008 after spending seven years at Google and has served as a board member since 2012. Her departure from the company in 2022 followed a series of controversies that hit the company's stock and reputation, most notably its struggles around disinformation during the 2016 presidential election. And as promised, Apple says it will remove the blood oxygen sensing feature from its Series 9 and Ultra 2 smartwatches. This after a U.S. appeals court yesterday lifted its stay on the sales ban, allowing Massimo to prevail in its patent dispute with the iPhone maker. Modified versions of the two Apple watches models will go back on sale today, Frank. All right, Silvana, thank you very much. All right, turn our attention now back to the markets. The major averages finishing in the red again yesterday as Treasury yields move higher. Strong retail sales numbers adding to the list of recent data that's making some investors rethink the idea of the Fed cutting rates as soon as March. Traders are now pricing in a 59% chance of a quarter point move. That's down from 63% yesterday and from 70% just a week ago. Speaking to CNBC at the World Economic Forum in Davos yesterday, Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon and J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, they both say they remain cautious on the U.S. economy. There's no question we've made a lot of progress on inflation. Uh, depending on how the progress you know, moves from here, that'll spell the direction of, of policy. I think it's hard, it's hard for me to see the market's view of seven cuts you know, this year. Um, you know, I do think there's a reasonable possibility of some interest rate cuts and some easing, but it's really going to be dependent on, on what the data says and how the economy transmits. through. I think it's a mistake to assume that everything's hunky dory. And, you know, and when stock markets are up, it's kind of like this little drug we all feel like it's just great. You know, but remember, we've had so much fiscal and monetary stimulation. So I'm a little more on the cautious side that we are facing a lot of things in 20 and 24 or 25. All right, let's bring in Vance Howard, CEO and Portfolio Manager at Howard Capital Management. Vance, good morning. It's really There's great no to question. see you. There's no question. We've made a lot of... Good morning, Frank. So I want to ask you, do you, do you agree with Jamie Dimon? Um, it's not really hunky-dory right now. Do you agree with both of these big-name CEOs saying that maybe it's time to cut back on the bullishness? And I also want to get your view on Fed cuts for this year. Well, there's a lot of anxiety around these Fed cuts and whether we're going to have a soft landing or not have a soft landing. And I think that's given everybody a lot of heartburn, clearly given Jamie Dimon heartburn. <laughs> but uh, we're, we're bullish this year. I think we are going to get a number of cuts. And let's face it, if we get two or three cuts, that's going to be really attractive for the market. You know, you're going to see bonds move higher. You're going to see people moving out of bonds and into stocks. So I think that's going to push the market higher. I guess I'm more of an optimist than a pessimist this year. I see the market going higher. I think we're going to have a good year, Frank. 
All right. So you, you say that if we get two or three, that's pretty good. But what's your outlook? How many do you see? The market's pricing in as many as seven. Uh, the Fed guided to three. Everybody else has been coming in with their opinion, whether it's two, three, four, five. Where are you at? I think we'll see three. I don't think we're going to see seven. I think so. that's, that is way too too optimistic. But I think three is going to do the job for us as far as an investor, as far as a trader. I think three is all we need to get this market to move higher. I am in the camp, Frank, that I do think we're going to see double-digit returns on the S&P 500. I think we're going to see a sloppy first half of the year. I think the second half of the year is going to be very, very attractive. And I think you're going to see a lot of players come back into the market and move this thing higher. Okay, so you're very bullish on the market. You see double-digit gains on the S&P this year. I want to bounce something off of you. Goldman Sachs came out with its outlook for the S&P this year. They called it the road to 5,100, and they spelled out how they see the markets going. So for the first half of the year, they see the S&P hitting 4,900. That's about a 2.5% rise from where we are right now. Year-end hitting 5,100, hence the title, of course, um, about a 7% rise. So Goldman Sachs even trying to put some cold water on this bullishness. What do you think about their outlook? I think their outlook is, is reasonable on the first half. I think the 4,900 call is probably pretty reasonable. I think you're looking at 53 to 5,400 on the S&P on the latter half of this year. I think they're a little too pessimistic on what's going to happen uh, you know, for the, for the 2024. We had a great run-up in 2023. 2024, there's so much cash on the sidelines, Frank. And if we do get these drop in interest rates, you've got a lot of short-term bondholders that are going to say, hey, a dividend stock is now paying more than these bonds are, so let's move it out of bonds and back into stocks. So I think the second half, I think you're going to see 5,400 on the S&P. All right. Very bullish, actually. So I'm going to get some of your picks. One of them is the VBK. It's the Vanguard Small Cap Growth Index. But I do have to ask you, Vance, we continue to see yields kind of creep up. And then yesterday, yeah. small caps were the hardest hit. Every time the rates go up, small caps get hit. Why do you think right now is the right time for small caps? Well, if you'll remember, Frank, the last time I was on your show, I recommended VBK and it just skyrocketed straight up. It did very, very well. The but last yields went down, months, Vance. Went- but yields went down. Yeah, that's, that's right. I understand that. But let, let's face this. This market is starting to broaden out. You had the Magnificent Seven, but now you're seeing the market broaden out. Small caps are pretty attractive right now. There are some great small cap companies that people should be buying and owning. But you've seen a modest pullback into 2024. But this is more technical than it is fundamental, Frank, because anytime you get this massive run up like we saw the last quarter of 2023, you're always going to have this consolidation period pullback. So I think small caps are a great place to play it, especially the back half of 2024 when this market broadens out. I I think you're going to see small caps really rip to the upside again like they did in the last uh, quarter of 2023. All right. Certainly a lot to watch there. Vance Howard, Howard Capital Management, always great to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Frank. All right. We got a lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. But first, the U.S. conducts yet another coordinated strike against Houthi targets in Yemen as the list of rebel attack ships in the Red Sea. It now grows to 33. Plus, we have your big money movers and why shares of plug power. They're losing a little juice ahead of the open. And then later, we see if the Bitcoin ETF investor enthusiasm, if it's waned one week after their public market debut, we have a one-on-one with the president of 21 shares coming up. A very busy hour still ahead when WEX returns. Stay with us. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. 
The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Turning now to the Middle East and a developing story as we watch the price of oil taking a look at WTI up over a half a percent. Brent crude just below a half a percent off of its highs of earlier this morning. The U.S. conducting its fourth coordinated strikes against Houthi rebels in Yemen overnight. The militant group has continued its attacks on ships in the Red Sea despite U.S. warnings. U.S. Central Command says the strikes last night, they targeted 14 missile sites. U.S. officials claim the Houthis were preparing to fire from areas they control in the region. Also this morning, Pakistan says it has conducted a strike inside of Iran two days after Iran's Revolutionary Guard attacked terrorist targets inside of Pakistan. The tit for tat, only adding to concerns about tensions across the Middle East. These latest U.S. airstrikes, of course, follow the ongoing Houthi threat in the Red Sea as of this morning. Thirty-three ships have been attacked by the rebel group since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, forcing many carriers to avoid the key shipping channel altogether. Hardest hit continues to be the routes from Asia to Europe, with one estimate projecting a 40 to 50 percent drop in total Suez Canal traffic. Among the companies flagging supply chain and shipping delays in response to those attacks are Tesla, Target, Ikea and Volvo. Let's discuss this further with one of the companies impacted. Joining me now is Casper Ellerbeck, Global Head of Ocean Freight at DHL Global Forwarding. Casper, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. So, Casper, I, I know first and foremost, your top concern are, are your, your crew members and the ships that you have there and their safety. Uh, but we do want to talk about logistics. So overall, give us a, a sense, paint a picture to us of the logistics situation right now, the delays. And what does this mean for consumers in Europe and also here in the U.S.? Well, I think first and foremost, I think the the, uh, the added uh, complexity that we're dealing with is somewhat similar to what we faced back in 2021 with the, the blockage in Suez Canal, meaning that vessels have started to to be routed down through the south, Cape of Good Hope, adding between between seven to ten days additional for for transshipments from Asia into Europe. That of course means that we will have a number of delays of vessels coming into Europe, um, and of course cargo that that. That was expected a week ago would would then be delayed. The added complexity to this is, of course, that the vessel needs to return also through the south, meaning that we're looking at a delay of equipment return, both vessels as well as containers of around 20 days, which we haven't really seen the true ripple effect of in terms of equipment unavailability in Asia. Yeah, you know, you mentioned that we haven't seen the true impact just yet. I speak to a lot of your colleagues at DHL, but other people in the supply chain. And I'm hearing a lot of people say what you say, what you're saying right now is that we don't really know the full impact. So one thing I, I do want to point out and something a lot of people talk about is the increase in rates. So, for example, the Asia or China to U.S. West Coast shipping lane, we've seen those rates increase pretty substantially up about 35 percent. But right now, it's also the weeks leading in to Lunar New Year, a time when rates rise seasonally. So give us a sense. How much of these increases we're seeing? How much is it due to Lunar New Year? How much is it due to the disruptions that we're seeing in the Red Sea? I think it's a bit of both. Obviously, Chinese New Year will always be the, the number one peak season for shipping. Um, and with the lack of equipment availability coming into weeks four to six, we will see a spike going into the Chinese New Year. What that then looks like uh, past Chinese New Year is then the question mark, whether or not the peak will, will remain. I think most customers will will, will try and, and fast forward their supply chains, ensuring that they actually have 
uh, goods to be sold on the shelves, which effectively means that we will see hopefully a, a, a stronger period past Chinese New Year uh, on shipping out of Asia. Right. The, uh, the ripple effect of this can, of course, also spill into other trades. Right now, we have only seen an impact on the European and the U.S. trade. U.S. trade predominantly driven by the Panama Canal, uh, like a water, which we're seeing slight improvements of at the moment, which means that part of the volume that is currently being routed through Suez into East Coast will very likely come back through the Panama Canal. But as equipment is going to be a topic for the future, we will likely see that, that the spread of other trades in terms of rate levels rising is high. All right. So, Casper, you're, you're saying equipment, but one of the pieces of equipment you're really talking about are containers. And for the audience, Correct. containers are how most consumer goods come to the U.S. and come to Europe. Uh, they're made in Asia or other parts of the, of the world. And then you put them in a container and then they go on the ship that way. Um, give us Correct. a sense. Give us a picture of the container situation right now. With these delays and these ships taking longer trips, is there going to be a shortage of containers? And, and how does that play out past Lunar New Year? There will very likely be a container equipment issue. Uh, the, the vessels that are delayed in coming back from Europe will, of course, have an impact on the equipment, i.e. the container availability in Asia. That's what we saw during the pandemic and, of course, during the ever-given situation was that equipment not coming back immediately had an impact on other trades. Not just Asia Europe, but also the Oceania trades, etc. They were all impacted because, of course, equipment, i.e. the container, can go anywhere in the world. All right. Casper Ellerbeck of DHL. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, one of the biggest players in the online gambling space, FanDuel parent company Flutter, reports results as it fends off a massive land grab from some rebranded rivals. Our Contessa Brewer is here on WEX and breaks it all down. Stay with us. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. It's time now for your big money movers. We start off with Discover Financial Shares. They're sinking right now. You can see they're down double digits. The credit card giant missing Q4 profit expectations as it deals with compliance and risk management issues, higher cost, and a leadership shakeup. Discover adding it to set aside more money in anticipation of a tougher consumer environment. Shares of Alcoa also lower despite better-than-expected Q4 figures. The aluminum producer posting a dim outlook for 2024 calling for another year of lower sales volume thanks to weaker commodity prices. Still, Alcala says it's gaining positive momentum as it works towards improved profitability through approval of its Western Australia mines. Those shares down just about a half a percent. And Plug Power, plunging on news it could start selling shares. The energy company calling out unprecedented supply chain issues and pushing out production timelines for its plants. This is Plug Power, focuses on its existing cash and liquidity position, and pursues a number of debt capital and project financing solutions. Those shares down more than 15%. All right, turning to the gaming space. The nation's leading sportsbook, FanDuel, is hoping for a surge in new investors when its European parent company, Flutter, lists on the New York Stock Exchange later this month. This morning, Flutter released some fourth quarter results. Our Contessa Brewer joins us now. Good morning, Contessa. How are you? 
I'm good, Frank. You know, here you've got a lot of speculation about whether a surge by DraftKings or Penn's licensing tie-up with ESPN could knock FanDuel off its throne. The answer is not now. FanDuel remains number one for sportsbook market share with 51%. That's based on net gaming revenues, 43% if you look at gross revenue for the fourth quarter. Now, their average monthly players up 33% year on year. It was really a remarkable showing in online casino as well. 5% improvement in market share over the previous year to 26%. So it puts FanDuel in second place. iGaming, as the business is called, is where the real profits are expected, even though only seven states or so offer it right now. U.S. revenue missed expectations. Fall football games ended with customers winning. Uh, In fact, they mentioned Seahawks-Dallas as a game in particular. But overall, it was a $343 million impact in the quarter. That, in turn, affected the margins. On the brief trading call, analysts pressed this morning Flutter CEO Peter Jackson about those margins, which were pressured. The nature of our business means that there are periods where the outcomes swing in our customers' favor, as we saw in the U.S. in November. This can cause variability when looking at shorter time periods. But reassuringly, if we look across all of 2023, our actual margin was just 50 basis points below expectations. And in 2022, it was 10 basis points ahead. Flutter did not release actual earnings numbers because its application to list on the New York Stock Exchange is still in front of the SEC. But it says it will release earnings and full year guidance late in March. The executive team is really eager, Frank, for that public listing because they want to, they said on the call, in fact, they want to make the company more accessible to U.S. investors. But really, I think it's that they're tired of DraftKings getting name dropped all the time in our market coverage. (laughs) Um, You know, we do hear quite a bit about DraftKings. Uh, I do want to ask you, though, Flutter has number one market share. It's a bit surprising for a foreign company. What's driving the strength? Well, FanDuel has had number one market share for a long, long time. They've been, and by 20 uh, margin, but 20% margin, give or take, between FanDuel and DraftKings, they tied up about 80% of the market share. Sometimes that um, shifts somewhat. Now, DraftKings did have a surge in the third quarter, but FanDuel really says that they have this flywheel where the the promotions drive the customers, the customers then keep coming back because they like the product, and they they think that they have a circular system that keeps the the customer in their ecosystem. They were first to the market with Parlay, and it's what they're known for. And Parlay is particularly profitable. It's very popular with the customers, even though it really does give the edge to the book. But as we have seen, and and I just mentioned it about those fall football games, when the games turn in customers' favor, it can be very profitable for the customers. They just love those big payouts. The other thing I want to mention on iGaming, and it might be surprising and counterintuitive, but they say that they're really getting their strength from the pure casino player, not a cross-sell from sports bettors coming onto the iGaming platforms and, and offerings there. Really interesting to see the gains made there, especially against BetMGM, because they're coming from a bricks-and-mortar real strength in casino. Yeah, you mentioned those football games, Contessa. The Cowboys losing. That definitely hurt the forecast, I think, for every one of these Ah. companies. So popular here in the United States. Uh, Contessa Brewer, reporting as always. Great to see you. And when the Super Bowl comes back around, we've got to have you back on. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, a cloudy forecast from the CEO of Google. 
why he's telling staff to brace for more job cuts. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast if you miss Worldwide Exchange. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Much more WEX coming up after this. Stay with us. It is just about 5.30 a.m. in the New York City area, and there's a lot more ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. Stocks trying to put a stop to their slide as investor expectations for a March rate cut continue to pull back. Futures right now, they are working to hold on to their gains. We're marking one week since the launch of spot Bitcoin ETFs as momentum around their highly anticipated funds. It continues to hit new highs. And thanks, but no thanks, the streaming giant has decided to pass on being a part of Apple's new Vision Pro headset. It is Thursday, January the 18th, 2024. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Let's get you ready to start your day. As always, we pick up the half an hour with the check of U.S. stock futures. Taking a look, you can see it's kind of a mix right now. The Dow fractionally lower, the S&P fractionally higher. It's the Nasdaq that we're watching right now up just about a third of a percent. We're also checking the bond market with the 10, the 20, and the 30-year yield hitting their highest level in just about a month. Taking a look at the benchmark right now at 4.07%, the yield there. We're also watching the energy market. Oil edging just slightly higher this morning. Taking a look at WTI up over a half a percent. Brent crude just below a half a percent. We'll continue to watch oil throughout the morning, especially with so much Red Sea disruption. Okay, that is your morning setup. Let's now get a check on some of this morning's top corporate stories. Our Silvana Hanau is here with those. Silvana, good morning. Hey, Frank, good morning to you. Well, Alphabet CEO is warning employees that more job cuts are coming this year. In an internal memo obtained by CNBC, Sundar Pichai says ambitious goals and big investments will force the company to make, quote, tough choices for some teams. That means eliminating roles and removing layers to simplify execution. Alphabet is continuing to shift investments toward areas like what else? Artificial intelligence, with Pachai saying the company will share its AI goals for 2024 this week. Meanwhile, Goodyear Tire is reportedly expected to tap a Stellantis executive as its CEO. Bloomberg reports Mark Stewart will be named to the position following months of pressure from shareholder Elliott Investment Management. The report adds that announcement is expected this week. And Bloomberg also reporting that when Apple's Vision Pro launches, one one high-profile app won't be on the headset. It's Netflix. The report says the streaming giant will not launch an app for the headset, and it also won't make its iPad app compatible on the device. Instead, users will have to watch content from Netflix on a web browser, making the experience likely Far less immersive, Frank. I don't. I don't even know how to take that. <laughs> I don't either. I'm not sure either. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I don't. It doesn't affect me. I don't have one. Same. I, I don't plan and, on spending $3,500 on <laughs> one, so I, I'm okay. <laughs> but if you want to watch Stranger Things on your Vision Pro headset, right, it's, it's just not, not going to work. Exactly. Right. Savannah, thank you very much. You got it. All right, turn our attention now to Washington D.C., where Congress is taking things down right down to the wire to avoid a partial government shutdown. The Senate is scheduled to vote on the latest stopgap funding measure today, which would then go to the House either today or tomorrow. As they move forward on funding the federal government, House members continue to explore new ways to reduce the national debt, which now stands just above $34 trillion. Emily Wilkin joins us now from Washington with much more on this story. Emily, good morning. 
Good morning, Frank. Well, yeah, while Congress is again rushing to fund the federal government, you got to remember here that they're only really dealing with about a third of all federal spending. The other two thirds are at the core of legislation set to be approved by the House Budget Committee this morning. Now, this bill would create a commission to address that $34 trillion in federal debt, which means addressing programs that are automatically funded without Congress reapproving them every year. So these are really critical things. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, these are all programs that Congress doesn't necessarily reauthorize, but that the government still has to spend on. Now, this isn't the first commission to look at the debt, but Michigan Republican Bill Huizinga, the legislation sponsor, said that there is a new level of urgency, especially now that interest rates are back to normal and the amount the government owes on the debt has almost doubled in the past three years. We've seen interest rates go back to historic norms, which has caused our interest payments to just massively balloon and they're now competing with everything that we do on the domestic side. So we have fewer options, yet we are continuing to rack up massive amounts of debt. Although lawmakers hope to have the commission be added to bills for funding the federal government, it's unclear whether that's actually going to happen. There is bipartisan support. Both House and Senate have these bills, and Speaker Mike Johnson has pledged to support it. But there are some really tricky political dynamics here, as lawmakers who suggest a need to update Social Security often run the risk of being accused of trying to take it away from seniors. And Frank, of course, that can be a huge third rail when it comes to politics and and something most folks don't want to touch even while they acknowledge that some reforms are going to be needed to Social Security. All right. So, I mean, I want want to circle back. You mentioned this is a tricky situation, a lot of moving parts. Let's go back to the Senate vote. When is that Senate vote happening? What are you expecting from that? And then, again, give us the timing on when this goes to the House. So we said it, you know, it's always got all those process votes, process votes, process votes, but they came to an agreement last night basically to speed things up. So I think what we're expecting to see in the Senate today is uh, just very smooth going forward. You had that vote earlier in the week that was highly bipartisan. I think we're expecting to see that again. And this could happen as soon as, say, mid-afternoon, talking like 2.30, 3.30 or so. The Senate could have officially passed that stopgap measure that will continue government funding till March 1st and March 8th. And then, of course, it goes to the House. Now, the House might want to pick it up today. Members have been told, hey, you might be voting on this. But, of course, they could still vote on it on Friday and we could avert a government shutdown at least until we get to early and mid-March, <laughs> in which case we're going to have to see what members of Congress are able to do. At least. That is the key word or the key phrase in this whole thing. Emily Wilkins, great reporting as always. Great to see you. All right, turn our attention now to cryptocurrency. Today marks one week since the public debut of nearly half a dozen spot Bitcoin ETFs after years of wrangling with regulators. And while the one-week performance of the sector is nothing to write home about, the investor enthusiasm for the sector appears to show no signs of easing at all. Since their debut, according to CoinShares, a net $871 million has flowed into the space. And if you exclude the grayscale Bitcoin trust, that number jumps to more than $2 billion. Joining me now is Ophelia Snyder, president and co-founder of 21 Shares and a co-sponsor of the ARC 21 Shares Spot Bitcoin ETF. Ophelia, good morning. It is great to have you here. I'm going to spare you any Shakespearean references. Just great to have you here. Good morning. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so give me a sense. Um, we see the flows. We're going to show the flows to the audience in just a minute. But when, you, when you're talking to investors, when you're talking to people that are thinking about investing in your fund or other funds, what are the questions that you're getting one weekend? So it's been really interesting, actually. The, the questions are, 
somewhat different than I originally expected. I think you're seeing a lot of people be highly interested in um, infrastructure in a way I didn't expect, uh, which is which is great. Um, really digging into sort of the guts of how these products work. I think there is a bit of a, a misconception that, you know, all, all these products are, you know, completely alike. I think there's been a significant amount of sort of research and due diligence that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still very early in this process. For example, you know, for, for advisors, for, for platforms, you know, they're, they're still going through the process of figuring out which products they're going to offer to their clients, how they're going to offer those products to their clients, how they're going to advise clients on this space, how they're planning to get smart on it. Um, and I think it's still unbelievably early in the lifetime of these products. Right. Uh, we're just showing the fund flows. Your fund over the last week's had about $250 million of inflows. That's according to the latest data from CoinShares. Um, are you surprised by that number? Is it higher than you thought, lower than you thought? Did you, thought, did you think people would just start pouring money into this because there's been so much talk about it? So I think this is... In some respects, I think more excitement for these products than I would have initially expected. It's certainly way more than you would see for a any kind of regular ETF launch um, in, in the U.S. or elsewhere. I think the numbers we're seeing are you know on par with what you would expect potentially with a first year or two of an ETF's lives, not the less than the first week. Um, okay. I think the reason for that is partially pent-up demand, partially um, I think you're also seeing the result of a 10-year process to get these products to market. Okay. Um, you know, not not just our product, but, you know, if you're looking at that $2 billion across those uh, those products that were all launched on the same day, that's an amazingly robust number. Um, that's fair. And not something you would expect. You know, that, that is fair. It's a number of thematic ETFs all released on the same day. But I, I do want to kind of talk to you about that and some questions about volatility. Here it seems you have the fortune of talking to a lot of financial advisors. And a lot of people are worried about the volatility of your ETFs. Of, of course, of Bitcoin itself, it's a pretty volatile asset class. But I want to bounce this off of you. Now, this is according to S3 Partners. Since the start of just this year, crypto stock short sellers, they've made $1.78 billion. They're up 27% this year. Are you worried about volatility and the fact that these thematic ETFs for Bitcoin, they're coming out really at the top of the market? And we've seen other thematic ETFs that are issued at the top of the market have trouble. I mean, the cannabis ETF, I think, is a great example. Um, the, the short answer is no. I think if you look at the history of investing in Bitcoin as an asset, it has a tendency to be a time, not necessarily a timing issue. Um, these, these assets do perform quite well on you know, a long-term buy-and-hold basis as part of a balanced portfolio um, and are quite impactful to portfolios on a risk-adjusted return basis. And so I think, you know, it's an interesting moment in crypto because this is a bit of a change in terms of mainstream adoption. And we're moving from an asset that doesn't, didn't really need to be discussed regularly as part of a mainstream uh, conversation about finance. I think that has shifted over the last couple of years, and the advent of these products is going to essentially push us into a world where people need to have an opinion here. And I think that's changed the Speaking of opinion and speaking of the established financial system, uh, I want to play some sound from Jamie Dimon and Davos yesterday. Just for the audience, we put a bleep in there. I know some people heard some some cuss words in there yesterday. Um, I want to bounce this off you. I want to get your reaction. What do you think of the, I mean, there's about a dozen big financial companies 
Fidelity included. Number one, I don't care. So just please stop talking about this. And and I don't know what he would say about blockchain versus currencies that do something versus Bitcoin that does nothing. It may be that not different than me. But, you know, this is what makes a market. People have opinions. This is the last time I'm ever going to state my opinion. So, Ophelia, your reaction, uh, I think it's pretty obvious the word we bleeped out there, but the, the theme of what he was saying, I think, is pretty clear. I think it's not for everybody. It's not going to make sense for everyone's portfolio. But I think if you look at the history of how this asset class has performed, the benefits it can provide to portfolios, it does have a, a place in this conversation. Um, I think that's been fairly well established. Uh, we've seen quite a large number of financial firms uh, come around on these these topics. Um, you know, J.P. Morgan runs a very significant and, and quite interesting uh, tokenization platform um, and blockchain projects within their firm, and that they're quite large proponents of the technology. If he doesn't love Bitcoin, I, I don't know okay. that that necessarily mat- matters all that much. <laughs> You know, Ophelia, um, fair point. It doesn't matter to you. It doesn't matter to your ETF. Ophelia Snyder from 21 Shares. It is really great to have you here. Thanks for your time and for your insight. Good luck with your ETF. Thank you. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, tensions in the Middle East and Red Sea escalating further as another country finds itself involved in the growing conflict there. But first, some of your top trending stories. Forget alcohol. A new kind of dry January could bring you a huge monthly payout. Siggy's Dairy is offering $10,000 to 10 participants willing to give up their smartphones for one month to ensure complete compliance. Siggy's will send participants a lockbox and a flip phone with a one-month prepaid SIM card. Want all the wings but none of the calories? You're in luck. Burt's Bees and Hidden Valley Ranch out with a limited edition Ranch Dippers lip balm. Starting this week, wing lovers can buy a four-pack of lip balms featuring ranch, buffalo sauce, celery, and carrot flavors. I don't know why you have the last two. Those don't sound that good. An Uber, one DMV zero. New data showing the majority of Gen Zers are choosing not to drive and instead opting for public transportation, ride sharing, and even e-scooters. Today, only 25% of 16-year-olds and 45% of 17-year-olds have a license. That's according to the Federal Highway Administration. That's a shocker. I couldn't wait to get mine. Worldwide Exchange, coming back right after this. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your morning call sheet. We start with Morgan Stanley upgrading its rating on Hertz to overweight. It says the car rental giant has begun to take decisive action to address self-inflicted challenges from its large EV fleet shares of Hertz right now. You can see they're up over 5% in the pre-market. Arsenal, Wolf Research raising its rating on analog devices to outperform. Wolf saying it's confident the chipmaker's been through the worst of its inventory correction, and it thinks the company has some of the best, best growth prospects in analog. Those shares right now up almost 1%. And more trouble for Spirit Airlines and its stock, of course, which is down 60% this week. Take a look at the chart. City downgrading the carrier's rating to sell, also cutting its price target. It says... Following that decision around its scrap JetBlue merger, a new bid seems unlikely without the company first restructuring its debt. Again, shares down more than 60 percent week to date, down about 4 percent in the pre-market. Time now for your global briefing. We revisit one of our top stories this morning, Pakistan launching airstrikes against, quote, terrorist hideouts within Iranian territory this morning, killing a number of militants. This in response to an Iranian strike in Pakistan on Tuesday, one Pakistani leader said could lead to, quote, unquote, serious consequences. 
The U.S. also conducting a fresh round of strikes against Houthi targets in Yemen, calling the missiles an imminent threat to merchant and U.S. Navy ships in that region. Shares of Taiwan Semi rising on better-than-expected Q4 earnings, though numbers are still down sharply from a year ago. The chipmaker calling for steady capital spending for the current year and a 20 percent revenue increase due to demand for AI. TSMC also planning to expand its global footprint through a fab plant in Germany. And watches of Switzerland shares, they are plummeting right now, nearly 30 percent. The company cutting fiscal 2024 guidance as challenging macro conditions. They weigh on the luxury consumer spending market. While demand for the watchmaker's key brands remains strong here in the U.S., sales for watches and non-branded jewelry is under pressure in the U.K. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, we have the one word that every investor needs to know today. Plus, we have the Asian country that our next guest says is top of mind as the central bank prepares for a key rate decision. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Much more WEX coming up after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. We start with the FAA saying inspections of an initial group of Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets is now complete. Following that January 5th Alaska Air Panel blowout, the agency will now, quote, thoroughly review the data and create a corrective action review board to decide if these planes can resume flights. Former Meta Platform's chief operating officer, Sheryl Sandberg, leaving the company's board of directors. Sandberg joined Facebook back in 2008 after spending seven years at Google. She served as a board member since 2012. Apple will remove the blood oxygen sensing feature from its Series 9 and Ultra 2 smartwatches. This after a U.S. appeals court lifted its stay on the sales ban yesterday. China's Internet regulator conducting a security review of Xi'an ahead of its highly anticipated IPO. That includes how the company handles employee, partner and supplier information. Discover financial shares sinking after missing Q4 profit expectations due to compliance and risk management issues, higher cost and a leadership shakeup. And Plug Power plunging on news it could start selling shares up to a $1 billion offering. The energy company calling out unprecedented supply chain issues and pushing out production timelines for its plants. You can see here those shares down more than 16 percent. All right, here's what to watch today. Several pieces of economic data out ahead of the open. That includes initial jobless claims, housing starts, and building permits. We also get earnings from KeyCorp, M&T Bank, Truist Financial, and J.B. Hunt. We also get fresh Fed speak from Atlanta Bank President Raphael Bostic. All right, plenty of catalysts for the trading day ahead. Let's see how the markets are shaping up right now in the pre-market. Taking a look at futures, we've seen it's kind of a mixed look uh, earlier today. Similar picture right now, but all three indices are now in the green. The Nasdaq, the best performer up just about a half a percent. For much more, let's bring in Jeff Kleintop, Charles Schwab, Global Ch- uh, Chief Global Investment Strategist. Almost messed up your title there, Jeff. Good morning. It's great to have you here. <laughs> Good morning. Thanks for having me on. So I, I just want to ask you, what do you think about the action we're seeing in the futures? Before it was kind of mixed. Now we're seeing all three firmly in the green. Well, Frank, I think it's like returning a Christmas gift after the holiday. Markets seem to have been taking back the Santa Claus rally on signs of a later start to rate cuts from policymakers and from the economic data. But we're soon going to enter the quiet period ahead of the next Fed meeting. So markets can be stabilizing and refocus on earnings, which are generally solid so far. All right. So you're actually focused on things outside of the U.S. and the U.S. futures. You're actually looking at something I don't think we pay a lot of attention to here at CNBC. Japan CPI. It's going to come out later today. Why do you think that's so important for investors? 
I think it's the most important piece of economic data today. And that's because Japan's CPI for December is going to be the last key data point ahead of the January 23rd Bank of Japan meeting, where there's a chance of a rate hike for the first time in 17 years. A hotter than expected reading could boost Japanese assets and the currency because any rate hikes over the next year hold the potential to prompt Japanese investors to sell foreign stocks and bonds, including $1.1 trillion in treasuries, and bring them home, boosting Japanese assets at the expense of markets elsewhere. Yeah, by the way, your Wexler of the day today is Japan. I kind of jumped the gun on you there, Jeff. We're also showing the audience, these aren't your picks, but they're ETFs that are exposed to Japan that you say could potentially benefit from uh, a CPI reading and that, that uh, decision by the central bank. I um, also want to look at something that we were talking about earlier in the show, the supply chain. So you're looking at container rates specifically from the from uh, China and Asia to the U.S. West Coast. Now, that's that lane not impacted by the Red Sea disputes at all. But the prices have increased um, pretty significantly year over year. So give me a sense. Why do you think that's so important to U.S. investors? Well, inflation is such a hot topic right now, particularly with central banks debating when they're going to start rate cuts. Container shipping prices are now poised to rise above their year-ago level. They've been falling for over two years. So this would be the first time since the peak of the supply chain problems two years ago that we're seeing rising uh, prices on a year-over-year basis. Those choke points at the Panama Canal and the Red Sea are starting to impact supply chains, even those that don't go through the Panama Canal or the Red Sea. For example, the most popular route, Shanghai to L.A., those prices are up 40% to ship a container from Shanghai to L.A. So as that continues to feed in across the cost structure, we could see maybe more pushback on the expectations for Fed rate cuts. That could be bad news for stock valuations, especially those that thrive on a flood of market liquidity like the Magnificent Seven. Okay, so you're worried about the inflationary impact of the supply chain, which makes sense. That's largely the reason for a lot of the the inflation that we saw during the pandemic. But we had a guest on earlier that believes that some of it's going to ease, at least after Lunar New Year, when seasonally there is this uptick that you're talking about. Um, If we get past this point and and those rates on the supply chain, if they they continue to go back down, um, does that change your view about the impact of the supply chain on Fed decisions? Yeah, right now it's just a risk. It's not the base case. And I think there's another thing peaking. That's the El Nino. That's been a big part of why the Panama Canal has been so backed up. Just no rainfall there. That's continued to be restricted through February. But if we get past that peak in El Nino and weather patterns begin to re- reestablish their, their normal patterns, yeah, we could see some of those concerns begin to ease. All right. Coming up in t- in today ahead, uh, you're looking at Japan CPI. Anything else you think investors should be paying close attention to? Of course, we're also having a number of regional banks reporting as well. Yeah, watching those bank earnings are important because, remember, some of them are more exposed to uh, some of the uh, commercial lending issues than others, uh, particularly into real estate and development. That's really important, knowing that's still a weak part for the uh, the entire bank structure, not only in the U.S., but around the world. All right. Jeff Kleintop of Charles Schwab, always great to see you. Thank you for your time and for your insight. One more look at futures before we let you all go. As we just mentioned just a short time ago, all three indices now in the green. The Dow looking like it would open up about 25 points higher before we saw it just fractionally lower. That's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. we got Squawk Box coming up next. Have a great day.
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.